Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. The consumer electronics um, industry is just so much bigger than fly fishing. Fly fishing is small. That's what I took was I want to keep doing what I like doing. It's not about the money or how big you can grow a company. It's about what do you really like to do day to day? What is your involvement in the company? And I like to design. I like to do uh, create content. I like to fish and I like to talk to my customers. That was Jeff Sasaki on what growing a company the right way is all about. Ultralight Euronymphing Gear, the Truckee River, and the Element Case today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how are you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Instagram right now, at Wet Fly Swing. If you want to follow us on Instagram and ask a question, we're also going to be eventually giving away some swag right there. The best chance to follow what we have going. Check us out right now. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro nymphing reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without shoulder burn. Check out Maverick Fly Fishing Stinger and their other Euro nymph products and support this podcast by heading over to wetflyswing.com slash maverick right now. That's Maverick. M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash maverick. Check out the lightest and most unique Euronifing reel right now. Jeff Sasaki texts into what it's like to build a massive brand in the cell phone accessories business. And while you transferred over to producing unique fly fishing gear, we find out how to fish dries with a Euronifing setup, how Newton's law affects your cast, and his take on the center axis fly reel. Plus, we get an update on Maverick fly fishing and uh, why it's so important not to whiff it. Here we go. Jeff Sasaki from maverickflyfishing.com. How you doing, Jeff? Good. How you doing, Dave? Good. Great to have you back here on the show today. We're, uh, we're going to dig into some on a little bit of a, a tweak from some of our uh, tips and tricks. I guess there's going to be some tips and tricks here, but we're going to talk about new product development, product design, because you're an expert in this in this field, you've created uh, some products we're going to talk about both in fly fishing and outside. But give us a little update since our last podcast, we talked, um, you know, kind of your rods and reels and everything on the last one and Euro nipping. But what have you been up to since that last episode? Um, we did, I guess it's it's been what a few months? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd say the main thing is that uh, we're expanding our rod line. And uh, I've been working for a long time on my goal was to, to design a pro level rod at a very good price um, being able to sell it online and direct but it took me a long time to develop that the rod that i liked and um uh, but we finally got it and by the time this airs we'll probably have it uh have it all launched and um, i'm just pretty excited about that nice and what is this one so i was actually on the river this last week and i used your rod and caught some nice fish and i want to talk about that a little bit today but Talk about the rod that I use versus this new rod. How are they different and why did you go into creating another rod? Okay. Yeah. They're both three weights. Uh, the rod you have is a is three slash four weight. So it's got a, it's a little heavier weight. So it may not cast the smaller nymphs as well, but it's going to cast some of the bigger, uh, the bigger streamers and bigger, heavier weighted flies uh, a bit better. The rod you have is a, uh, it's called a convertible rod because it can be fished as a, uh, a nine footer or a 10 foot uh, three, uh, depending on if you put the little insert piece in there. But what I, what I really wanted to do, I like rods right around the 10 foot uh, range, 
Uh, I haven't really found too many rods over 10 feet six that I like, and that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted a longer rod, but it had to be, have the, the right action and, and it needed to be uh, really lightweight. So, so I focus on that. I wanted to make a 10 feet six rod, but I wanted it to be super light and durable and I wanted to cast really well. So, um, the rod you have, because it's a convertible, it's going to break down. It's in five pieces. So it breaks down smaller. And that's the advantage of that. It fishes really well because it's a, it's a pretty high end carbon fiber. It's a, a 40 T T is in tonnage. So it's a pretty light rod. The rod you have in its 10 foot three section is, is about 3.3 ounces. So it's fairly light. And when you break that down to a, a fish it as a nine footer, you're fishing under three ounces. So it's a pretty light rod, but I wanted to go longer. Like I said, a 10 foot six range, but I wanted it to be under three ounces. So that means going up to um, the best carbon fiber that I can find. And that's, that was a uh, Japanese carbon fiber. That is a tonnage rating of uh, a 46 T and that allowed me to make a longer rod with the action I wanted with the super lightweight. And this is a four piece rod. So, oh, wow. Yeah. So the flex is going to be coming down a little bit further in the midsection than the rod you have. Your rod is pretty rigid in the base. So it's a faster acting rod, uh, action rod. And this new one is probably a, I'd say a, a moderate to, to fast. So just a really nice longer length. It seems like to me that, that the longer you go, the, the lighter the rod has to be. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. So basically the rod I have is yeah, and it has that extra piece, which I fished. I fished the 10-3, and it seemed, I mean, it seemed perfect, I, you know, but again, I'm not an expert in it, but it seemed great. I didn't even try it without, you know, for the shorter range, but essentially, the new rod you're building is going to be longer and lighter than the one that I use, which is an advantage. But a lot of people, do you think some people might not even notice the difference, or is this more for upper-level Euro folks? Yeah, well, it's kind of both because a longer rod's going to be, is easier to fish the whole thing with your own nymphing and the, the problems people have with your own your own casting is uh, getting that slack out of the line. And a longer rod is going to do that. So there's a couple ways to get slack out of your line. And one is a longer rod just because it has more travel, right? It has more distance. Mm. So it pulls the slack out easier, but it's not as fast. I mean, it just has more resistance in the wind. So casting a small rod, uh, a nine footer or nine six, if you're used to smaller rods, uh, can be good too, because it's quicker and you can take slack out uh, with that speed. It's just, you have to have the timing right more on a shorter rod. So with the, with a longer rod, it can be easier just because the timing doesn't have to be spot on like a shorter rod. So as you get better and you, and as you progress, right, you can get better at the shorter rods. That's amazing. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're not fishing a very big river, if you're fishing something small, say like the Provo, you can cast all the way across the river with a nine foot rod, no problem. So this is making sense. And again, I'm, I'm, this is like everybody's seeing my, my uh, challenges, but you know, I've fished, I've tried with the shorter rods and I remember struggling and with your rod, you know, the 10, three, I mean, I was casting it great. I wasn't casting, you know, across the river or even 50 feet. But it was casting easy. And I remember the first time I was out Euro nymphing, it was really a challenge, you know, just to cast it. And I remember even George Daniel, I think on a recent episode, mentioned the same thing you just said there is that, yeah, it's all about slack. You need to get the slack out of your line because that's the key casting these really light setups, right? Yeah. And getting the slack out of line is all about timing because the slack is in the air, right? You're aerializing your cast and it's usually that slack in the back cast. 
So as you're pulling the rod back in your back cast, uh, you've got all that slack and that, that loop you got to get, get out. And a longer rod does that easier. A shorter rod is, is harder because you have to wait longer. And then you have to go forward a little, with a little bit more speed with a smaller rod. But the other thing too, is just the advantage of a longer rod as far as reach. That's the other big component in Euronymphinus to be able to reach and suspend that line off the water. So if you're fishing around boulders and pocket water, I mean, the ability to reach and get your line around a boulder and fish both sides of that, of the seam that's below the boulder, if you can fish the far seam and the inside seam, you're at a huge advantage. So in cases like that, a longer rod is, is better. It may not be as fast and it may be feel a little bit slower and heavier, but the advantage of reach in certain waters is, is just huge. That's better. That's it. And then eventually there's some length, right? I mean, you know, why not go up to 13 feet? Like, is it just a weight thing, you know, on the length of the rod? Yeah. At that point, to me, I found that anything over 10, six, even, even 10, eights, I, I don't like 10, eights. They just, you know, you reach that point of diminishing return where, where your rod is heavy and you can't cast it as well. And you can't even dead drift. You can't take advantage of that extra length and that reach because it's heavier and you start dropping your shoulder and your elbow and, and all of a sudden, and that's it for your dead drift, right? So that's why the longer your rod is, the more important it is for it to be light. So you can just suspend that rod and that line off the water surface. Perfect. Well, this is great. I love that we started with kind of a little on design because we talked about product design and let's take it back real quick on, you know, where you kind of came from. We talked about this in the last episode, as far as, you know, before you got into Maverick, but talk about that, that product you had, it was the, um, was it the element case that you created this brand? Oh, element case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was the company I had right before, uh, right before, uh, Maverick. Yeah. And I remember that. I remember those cases. I mean, that was a major, I don't know what sort of market share you had, but that was a giant brand because I mean, I know I heard about, I didn't have one, but I, I knew of element, right? So how did first, do you want to start us off with like some, you know, how you got into element industrial design? Where do you think would be a good place to start this conversation? Oh yeah. I guess we can work backwards or back to the beginning where, um, my degree and my background is in product design. Yeah. Let's start there. Let's talk because I think what I want to have people listening now to have a little insight in is, you know, if they're thinking, there's somebody here that's maybe thinking like, hey, I've got this idea for a product. How do I bring that product to market? And, and you've been there a number of times. So do you want to start there and just let's start at the beginning real quick and talk about that. So like if somebody is thinking about this, do they have to get an education to bring a, a product and create a brand and go, and go there? It all depends on what the product is. I mean, you can before there was industrial designers, everything was just designed by engineers or you know, anybody who can create something in 3D, but now it's, it's a very specialized uh, profession where we look at human factors. We look at styling. We look at, we have to look at marketing. Is that different Jeff from say described industrial design versus say other types of design and, and engineering? What is industrial design? Yeah. Industrial design versus graphic design. Graphic design is 2D. So everything on a 2D, like all the graphics on a web page, all the graphics on you know, apparel or, or textiles, um, industrial design is 3d. So we're designing things in 3d car designers or industrial designers, furniture designers, computer designers, anybody designing anything in 3d is an industrial designer. And then the difference between industrial design and engineering, uh, say mechanical engineering is we would come up with the design, but we would work closely with mechanical engineers. So we have to know some mechanical engineering as far as uh, basic 
3D uh, construction, 3D CAD, um, but we're not going to go in there and run formulas and say, okay, this wall thickness has to be this, this thick, and it's got to have this draft angle on it. We're not getting into those kind of details. We're basically using 3D design to help us conceptualize and and uh, build overall basic design. And then we're working with them to to get it into the manufacturing details and, and uh, engineering and, you know, like, uh, let's see, mold full anal analysis. We would never get into that. It's like, okay, how does the how does an injection molding process, how does plastic flow, those kind of details, we let them figure it out. Oh, right. Like, for example, like the, well, I'm just thinking the different products, but the roto molded coolers, right? Exactly. Like those are, those have just been because of Yeti and all these, I mean, they're just everywhere now, you know, they cost a arm and a leg, but you know, they keep the ice lasting longer, but they're also heavy, right? There's kind of give and takes, but is that how you look at the products is there's always kind of, you can't have everything and you kind of find that little sweet spot. Yeah. We look at the parameters, what the product needs to be. It's, it's like, okay, we need to design a cooler. It's gotta, it's gotta have this much volume and it's gotta keep ice cold for this many days. And you know, all, all that's pretty basic. And then the look of it, how the handles and the uh, latches are designed. And then we will start working with an engineer to detail it out. He will figure out, okay, what are the actual numbers and he'll do the number crunching and he'll figure out all the specifics of getting in into uh, uh, manufacturing. And then there's, there's a lot of it, a lot of design and engineering has to be, has to do with cost. So we can't just come up with a design and have it engineered out and a thing costs in the end, the thing's going to cost, you know, a thousand dollars. Right. Uh, you know, we can't do that. So we have to stay in those parameters. So the industrial designer, he's, he's the guy or the girl that has uh, a little bit of knowledge in all areas and pulls it all together. Gotcha. Jack of all trades. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> master of nothing, master of nothing, Jack of all trades, right? Yeah. Master of nothing for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so like when we design cars, we, we do a lot of sketches and we do um, that's how I started out industrial design is automotive design. And so you do a lot of sketching and then you go to the next phase. What company would you start with? I started out with Peterbilt trucks. Oh yeah. In school, we worked, we worked on automotive design and uh, developed all our skills there. And then after school uh, that's when I went to Peterbilt and designed interiors and exteriors and uh, more aerodynamic shapes. But so that's one designer for a whole, there was probably 24 engineers there and they're all working on mechanical engineers. Wow. So I'm doing the styling and I'm doing all the sketches and go to the next step and then do some clay modeling, go to the next step, test it in the arrow, uh, in the uh, wind tunnel, the aerodynamics. And then when it's all looks like we're good, then uh, engineers kind of take over and they, they start building it. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, it's the same with automotive design, but you know, you've got teams of designers. This is cool. I love this stuff. It's so interesting because I mean, I've done some product stuff. It's been pretty pathetic, you know, before the podcast and the wet fly swing. I did some stuff like some Amazon FBA and, um, you know, and it was interesting because I'm glad I did it, right? Because I got this experience for a few years. But what I realized was like, wow, I mean, just the challenge of logistics and stuff, not even talking about the product is crazy, but you are doing... So let's take an element case because we're going to get into Maverick a little bit too, but I want to hear this element case story. First, where'd that idea come from and how'd you take it to like a market leader and then you sold it eventually, right? Yeah. Well, I started out in, like I said, automotive design and then I went into, uh, did some high tech stuff in, in the Silicon Valley and I spent a lot of time there, but then I really realized that, you know, my heart was in outdoors and action sports. 
So I started working for um, a motocross company, Fox Racing, where I designed on helmets, boots, and chest protectors. So my, my specialty became um, protective gear. And when I left there, I started a company and just, just um, outsourced. And I just I was a contract designer for different action sports companies. So I did a little work with uh, Specialized and, and Shift Racing and some um, European companies, motocross companies. So that became kind of my specialty was protective gear. And I was riding a lot at that time. And, and I was crashing a lot like you do on a motorcycle and bike. And I was breaking a lot of phones. And oh, wow. so, yeah, and <laughs> that was, that was a uh, business started to get really slow. It was a recession. So I spent a lot of time in the shop tinkering and I, my focus was to make an indestructible iPhone case. Hmm. So I machined it out of uh, aluminum and it came out pretty cool, had a cover on it and um, just decided, you know, maybe I'll just try to, just try to market this. And, and that was kind of my, uh, that was kind of my intro to entrepreneurship was to go from designer to let's market this thing and learning how to market. And so I created this product, um, took a while and dabbled with the first iPhones, the second iPhones and iPads, and it was going okay. It wasn't going well, but um, iPhone 4, that was the big one. That was the one that really um, just blew up. And it was because that was when that iPhone was lost in a pub near my house. It happened to be right down the street from my house. And it was all, it was international Ooh. news. Apple loses a prototype in a bar and uh, some, oh, wow. some guy finds it and he tries to return it to Apple and they don't get back to him. They don't, they ignore him. It's like Apple didn't know what to do. Oh, wow. So they have this prototype that nobody's ever seen this thing. It's like the whatever, the first ever. Yeah. And so some random guy finds it and wants to return it. But Apple is afraid to even respond because they don't want to admit that that's their phone or something like that. Who knows why they didn't respond, but he tried and tried and um, and he couldn't get it back to them. And then he took pictures of it and he gave it to one of those big tech blog sites. I can't remember if it was TechCrunch or Tech Gear. One of the, <laughs> yeah, and they just blew up the story. And now all of a mm. sudden the whole world is, is watching. And what was the Apple for? I'm trying to think, cause now you got, I mean, I've got the Apple, whatever it is, 11 or something. <laughs> I mean, why was the Apple for the big game changer? Because it had glass on both sides and it was a first oh, phone yeah. and it had this stainless steel band around the outer, outer perimeter. And that's why I was really intrigued. I, that design was so cool. And because it happened right down the street from my house in the Bay Area, I, I was drawn to that story too. So every time that tech company, they basically they took it apart and they showed the internals. Oh, that's what they did. Yeah, and I went to every electrical engineer I I knew, and I said, "Hey, is this real? Is this real? Because if it is, you know, I I want to design a case for this because Apple never releases any products or designs. It's very they very secretive. In fact, you can get in trouble if you get designs from one of their manufacturers in, in China. Sure. And you build a case for it, you know, you're kind of on their list and they don't want to work with you. Oh, right, right, right. So if you build, yeah, you can't go behind their back. Yeah. There's only certain companies that are, they have a agreement with to do that. And some of those big companies um, that they sell on Apple store, they let them have the information, but a small company like element case, they'd never give it to us. So anyway, I designed this case and didn't even finish it. It was just a rendering, a really nice CAD rendering. And we got it out on our site and it just blew up. And it was so big that it, 
we got so many orders at the time it just went viral and it just shut down the server that was hosting our site it was a company in australia and they had to shut us down because it took down their whole their whole company there was so much traffic wow so yeah that was just it was just crazy we were shut down and the whole story with that is just amazing how we had to come out of that and Damn. we didn't even have the product built and all of a sudden we have all these orders coming in these are pre-orders well at that time we didn't even think to have a pre-order list we just said hey if you want to order it and pay for it go ahead and we'll get it to you wow but it was so big that we had to stop and just stop taking orders and how did you get that? Let's take it back there a little bit. So you got this this iPhone and the iPhone 3 was the one that was kind of rounded side. I remember I had both. So the iPhone 3 was like rounded. And then when the iPhone 4 came out, yeah, they came out with this like nice sharp edges, right? Right. And it was just a different phone. And then you had the glass on both sides. Uh -huh. You designed that case. How did you go? You just create a website and then instantly Google found you guys. How did you get to all this traffic right away? We already had a case and people were already kind of had, had their eye on us. We were kind of this new up and coming kind of cool company that did build it cool stuff. But when that came out, I designed a case that was just a band, a perimeter, uh, a band that was machined out of aluminum. And at that time, you know, cases were really cheap, but I, I think mine was $79 and that just blew people's minds. And, and that that's, you know, the cost and the design and all that, that's what made it go viral. But that's what basically started the company. And uh, we just kind of grew from there. And at that point, we were still in my garage in San Carlos. And then from there, you know, it was a, just a mad race to get production going and hire more machine shops. I was working with a machine shop up in Oregon at the time. And, you know, they can only pump out maybe 25 models a week. And it's like, oh, you don't understand. We have 22,000 people waiting for this. Right. <laughs> Damn. It was just crazy. And, and then as time went on and we couldn't deliver, because the other thing that happened that was paralyzing was uh, PayPal um, locked our account. Oh, wow. And they do that for security because, right, if you can't just go on the internet and make this big promise, have everybody pay you, and then you just skip town, right? Right, right. So PayPal locks our accounts. So we, we don't even have access to any of that money. And um, we stopped taking pre-orders. We just put a sign-up list on there. And our sign-up list was over 20,000 people. Jeez. And so that's how that all started. And we, we just struggled to get the product out. You know, it was on the blogs. People were starting rumors that it was all fake and they're not going to get their stuff and they're looking for me. And it was quite scary. You know, they're saying, oh, that, you know, these guys aren't real and this right. is where they live. And <laughs> oh, man, no kidding. So while that's yeah. going on, I'm I'm flying all over trying to get machine shops and and things going and. And we're trying to, uh, as we get parts in, we're, we now have a shop and we, we're hiring people to assemble parts and, and cases and, and ship. And, you know, we're somehow all the work we're doing, we're barely chipping away at this, uh, this pre-order list. So that, that went on for quite a long time before we can kind of get control of that. And things always settle down in the iPhone industry because there's always another iPhone just around the corner. Right. So then as soon as the next one, the S came out, the 4S, and things settled down because people aren't as interested in, in a case for the, the 4. So now when you come to the 4S or the 5 and stuff, now you don't know the design? Now is it different? Now you can't design that? Was that the competitive advantage you had there? Um, we had to wait. We did designs based on the rumors that 
it was not going to change. It was only going to be a, a software and hardware update and the actual case wasn't going to change. So we designed next round of cases and we're still trying to, you know, we're hoping that we can still sell our old case. And um, yeah, so that was before we started working with injection molding and offshore, but every iteration of iPhone after that, we started to use different vendors. We started to uh, manufacture offshore and um, hire engineers and it just grew from there. And as fast as, as it all grew, it, it stopped even faster um, hmm. right around iPhone six. We had some real issues with that iPhone six going from iPhone six to six S. So um, things came to a halt really fast and things go from, you know, in a business like that, things grow fast and they can shut down even, even faster. And I saw it all. I saw rapid growth to, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, to some serious problems and gosh, yeah, it, it got pretty scary for a while there. What was the scary part? Just other than people knowing where you live and stuff. Well, that was the early days, but once we were around iPhone five and six, everybody knew who he was. Everyone was copying us. Even the big companies tried to come out with their own high end line. Oh, right. So you were the one, you were like one of the only ones doing this high end case. Right. So we, we did high end stuff with really, ex we machined exotic woods, Cocobolos or Ciracote and all these really exotic high end woods for people who like the luxury. And then we had the, the tactical side where we had G10 and carbon fiber and, and all these, um, military uh finishes and materials right which is what elements doing now if you look at their site elementcase.com yeah they've leaned more towards that we also had the sports side where it was all about lightweight and high performance it was uh titanium and carbon fiber and you know things like that machined aluminum so we had those three those three areas of the company and yeah people were trying to rip us off left and right but when you build a brand, everybody just wants your brand. They don't want a copy of it. Um, and back then, I don't know how it is now. I have no idea. But things went turned really fast with iPhone 6S because, again, we didn't know if it was going to change or if it was going to stay the same. So what Apple does, from what I've heard, is they're designing multiple projects, multiple phones. So that the iPhone 6S, they have different teams working on different versions of it, depending on what is actually going to launch because maybe some technology may not actually happen. So they always have a backup plan. There's a lot of stuff floating around out there as to what the next one's going to be. And you have to just kind of develop a, a design based on what is out there at the time. And we gambled and we, there was a rumor that it wasn't going to change at all. And for a plastic or rubber case, um, that's okay. But for our stuff that has really precision fit machine parts and combination with uh, injection mold parts, if the design changes a little, it doesn't fit right. And that's what happened to us. And so, so when the iPhone 6S did launch and things didn't fit quite right, you know, we started to see cases breaking because they were overstressed. So we, we got a lot of returns and we had to stop production. So you're doing a lot, you're, you're paying people back, you're paying for shipping, you're trying to fix the problems with your vendors. A lot of stuff happens at once. And the hard part is, is you don't really have a lot of time. You really only have like, you know, a few months to make money in the iPhone business because All right. they're on to the next one. Jeez. And because we're a high-end company, 
it's the customers we have. They're kind of the early adopters and they're looking for the next iPhone. They're going to upgrade to the next iPhone as soon as it comes out. Right. And probably get your case and probably buy your case again if you have it for the new one. They will if you have it, but they're the first to drop your case. If a new phone comes out, they're the first to drop a high-end product or to not buy because they're going to wait for the next one. So whereas if you have a plastic case, you know, you're, you're usually you're going to give your phone to somebody else and they're going to buy a cheap case because they got this phone for free. It's just a different market, a different customer. Yep. <laughs> so right. Wow. We chased that world for a while and, and it was tough. How'd you eventually pull out of this? When did you decide, Hey, this is, I, I got to get out of this. Well, there was a, uh, I do remember some of the lowest lows and the highest highs. I remember in the heyday we were making probably we were doing a million in sales every month. Wow. You know, for those months that it was hot and for a small company, that's, that's doing pretty good. That's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And then at the lowest lows, I remember thinking, man, we, we owe a million dollars. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's what our, and I, I think the lowest low was I was, I was in San Francisco and I saw a homeless guy. He was down and out and he had a little cup there. And I was just thinking to myself, man, that guy, he doesn't realize how good he has it, right? how bad it feels to owe that Gosh. much, be in debt that much, you know? And I think that was the lowest low where I decided I can't keep going through this. And, uh, but fortunately we had a, we still had a good brand and, um, another really good company in San Diego, um, purchased us and, and I was able to go work for them and it was a really good company. And then at that time I decided I just, I'm just not interested in staying in the, in the consumer electronics industry. I just got to get back to outdoors. So I left the company and, um, and just decided to take a break and fish and ride my dirt bike and mountain bike. And, and then that's when a uh, Maverick happened. Wow. God, that is a, that's a crazy story. So you, I mean, <laughs> and we all see it, you know, whether you're in California and I'm not sure around the country, I haven't been to every, every state, but you know, the homeless is definitely, you see it right? I, I know where I am. You see it everywhere. Yeah. And it's a struggle. You know, it's a real struggle because you're just like, and sometimes I think about the same stuff. You're like, and I've actually had family members who have been homeless. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like been like legit. I've seen, <laughs> I've seen that stuff. And it's just like, and to be in your situation where you owe so much money and you're thinking like, wow, <laughs> that homeless thing would actually be kind of good right now. Right. I mean, <laughs> yeah. When you start to look up to the homeless, you know, you got to do something different. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. It's like this, Dave. It's like if you go gambling, if you go to a casino and you go there and all of a sudden you start winning, 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 right? And right. You're doing great. And then all of a sudden it turns, you're playing blackjack and every single hand you lose <sighs> until pretty soon you're, you've lost all your winnings. You're going, okay, do I quit now? Or do I try to build it back up? Do I quit now? And I have some gas money to get home and, yep. you know, <laughs> you just right. got to make that decision. And, and that's kind of where I was at the time was it's like, you know what? I'm not going to risk more, more of a hole, right? I'm just going to, I'm just going to punt. I've got a nice out here and it's, I'm going to have a nice job and I'm going to get to, you know, live to live to fight another day, you know? Exactly. So it all, it all worked out pretty good. I learned a lot and, um, it was a stressful, um, that's amazing. <laughs> what well, what is so when you have Element case now you're moving on from that. When you go into Maverick, you know, what do you take from Element that helped you, you know, get it? Because the what you have at Maverick is really sweet. You know, it's clean, it's good, it's really great products. You know, I I think I love 
just everything you have going there. You know, did you take a lot from Element for Maverick? Oh, I took a huge amount. When you start a company, you get to do something, which is you get to design your own company the way you want it. Element case kind of grew out of, uh, grew to the point where I wasn't doing the things that I enjoyed doing. I wasn't able to design as much. I wasn't able to um, speak to customers. I mean, customers, we really had a good following and um, I wasn't able to do that. In fact, I remember walking into our um, customer service department and uh, we had hired a gal who I was listening to her answer the phone and she was just so rude. Oh and man. Damn. I was so upset over that. that I, I told my operations guy, yeah, keep an eye on her. If she talks to a customer like that again, get rid of her, you know, and it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, that I lost touch with everything like that, but you know, I don't want that to happen again. And, um, the consumer electronics um, industry is just so much bigger than fly fishing. Fly fishing is small. So that's what I took was I want to keep doing what I like doing. It's not about the money or how big you can grow a company. It's about what do you really like to do day to day? What is your involvement in the company? And I like to design. I like to do uh, create content. I like to fish and I like to talk to my customers. So I think that what I really took from Element Case was, man, you you got to look to the future and you got to plan. Had I had stayed small, I think Element Case would have been okay. Today's episode is sponsored by Maverick Fly Fishing. They make the lightest Euro Nymph reel in the world, which makes your rod more sensitive, casting more accurate, and you can hold your dead drifts longer without the shoulder burn. This reel is so unique, you may not even recognize it as a fly reel. I had a chance to fish the Stinger Reel with Jeff on his home river on the Truckee. The biggest thing that I remember is the weight. The weight really stuck out because you can't even barely tell there's a reel. It's essentially kind of like you're holding a rod all day long. I mean, it's that light. And uh, and when you're Euro nymphing, that is a key. And the other big thing I remember from that day was catching uh, a fish on my first cast. Pretty cool to be down in that part of the country and have some great success with Jeff. Maverick keeps things simple by offering a Euronymph product line with essentials you'll need from rod, reel, fly line, and leader system. Euronymphing doesn't have to be complicated, so let Maverick Fly Fishing get you started right now. You can learn more by checking out Maverick's YouTube channel for some tips and tutorials. And you can also head over right now to wetflyswing.com maverick to check out the good stuff they have going. That's Maverick, M-A-V-R-K, wetflyswing.com slash Maverick to support this podcast and take a look at one of the most unique and efficient Euronymphing setups on the market. Okay, back to the show. How would you have stayed small with Element? The demand grew so big that we had to change our the way we design products. It was more of a mass producing. So Right. So if you would have just said, come in and say, you know what? We've got this many thing and there's these people will get it and everybody else won't get it. Exactly. We only make so many. Yeah. Scarcity. Right. And then you can charge more. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, at least we wouldn't have those issues we would have had because when you scale, you know, you're investing in tooling. And one of an example is we um, made an interior liner on the inside of the phone to protect from the, the aluminum or the titanium. And that was all we used to use hand laid pieces of, microfiber and things like that. But as we got bigger, 
it was just too tedious and we wanted to cut that labor out of it. So we, we designed an injection molded uh, liner that was around between the phone and the, and the metal. And that was a huge mistake because once that liner didn't fit, then nothing fit. And you can't change that. Once it's injection molded and then the model of the phone, the phone got actually changed with the 6X. So it didn't fit anymore. So had we had stayed small and not worried about scaling, you know, we wouldn't have run into that. Right. That's it. Yeah. Looking back on it. And now when you look at Maverick, so you're where you are now, how does the, and you're thinking about that? Like, well, I guess it's a smaller market, so it's easier. It's a smaller yeah. market, but that's okay if you're a smaller company, right? Um, the market size doesn't matter if you're only, I mean, we have fly shops everywhere. We've got, it's plenty big enough for a small company. And what I decided was I wanted to keep Maverick small. I mean, Maverick's like, it's like a special club. When I started it, I didn't want to grow out of hand. I didn't want to have to be managing a lot of teams of people. I didn't want to have uh, worrying about uh, distributors and all the different channels of distribution. If I kept it small, then it doesn't matter how big the market size is. It's plenty big enough for a small company. The other thing is, you know, I get to keep in contact with my customers. And my idea was always to sell really great products, but at a good price. And the only way I can do that was to cut out all the channels of distribution, right? Mm, So my price for, I've always dreamed of doing like a pro level rod that was half the price of a rod that you'd buy in a, in a retail store. And I can do that because I'm selling it direct. But if I were a big company, you know, I, I couldn't do that. I'd have to make sure that there was margins, enough margins there for the company and, and their bigger, bigger companies have more expenses. Then you've got to pay the, the sales reps and they get their cut and the store wants their cut. So, you know, a fly shop will pay for a hundred dollar item. They're paying $50. So, you know, I wanted to just cut all that out and I can do that only if I stay small. And that's part of the whole business planning is, okay, once you make that decision, you can't, undo that and say, okay, now I want to sell my rods in fly shops. And that's because you didn't build in enough margin to pay everybody to do that. Because the fly shops, you know, they have a lot of, they're doing the selling, they're doing the, they're doing the promotions, they're doing the um, advertising for you sometimes. Um, they're paying for the, the rent. So they have a lot to do on their end in order to sell your rod. So it's a partnership. And the other thing, I, if I sell a rod into retail and I raise my price so that I can do that, I have to stick with that price online because I can't undercut my partners. The fly shop is my partner. So staying online and selling direct, you know, that's enables me to sell it for a lot, a lot cheaper. Yep. I gotcha. Okay. So that's, yeah, that's interesting. And well, let's think of this as maybe I was kind of thinking this like some tips on if somebody's, you know, creating a product or maybe some maybe things to avoid. So let's take it there just for a sec here. If somebody's thinking about a product, it could be in the fly fishing space or just outdoors. What would you tell them if they have this idea like, hey, I've got this great idea for this new whatever, you know, like box that holds all your uh, your camping kitchen stuff, right? Or, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. What do you tell them to say, hey, here's what you need to do. Here's some tips before you get started to think about getting into this. Would you have some good uh, advice there? Yeah, definitely. You have to cost out whatever the product is that you're you're designing. You have to um, talk to somebody who knows about, well, have an idea of what you think this box is going to be made of. And then you've got to talk to preferably an industrial designer, somebody who knows a little bit about 
materials and manufacturing and and also knows the industry and saying okay this is what the market might you know might bear so if you had a cool let's take it back to that cooler so at coolers you know in the summertime you know this climate change seems to keep getting warmer and you know warmer you know like i heard something about the global temperatures were at a max all-time high right yep on fourth of july and yeah so i mean that's the reality right this is where kind of we're heading and so like the cooler this rotomotive cooler is cool because it keeps your stuff good for like six days you're on a hot trip that's great but you got this idea for a cooler that isn't as heavy mm -hmm. because you're on your boat and you don't want to carry something that weighs 200 pounds and then you said the first thing is getting you know costing out so like yeti coolers 500 dollars you know the brands that are lower name brands are 250 300 but your product you want to be lighter so you're saying basically go out there and find somebody somebody in the industry who knows who's involved in this and start picking their brain yeah well first i would even before that what you can do is if you think you have a technology to make something like that in this case a cooler lighter i would say um you have to first think about what are the features and what are the what's the value proposition how much is this going to cost um well before even before cost i would say what are the features of this cooler that are going to stand apart from the rest of the coolers out there? Yep. I think lightweight would be actually a good feature to say, hey, it's just, it's going to keep it just as cold, but it's going to be half the weight, right? right? I don't even know if that's possible, but that would be a good feature. Right. So if you thought you had a technology that could do that, then you'd want to start, um, you'd want to think about, okay, what's it going to cost to build? Um, what's it going to cost to, uh, to sell how much what's your whole business plan how are you going to monetize this cooler in the marketing how will you market it and then um also just the business strategy do you want to start a company build a brand from nothing and try to sell this cooler that no one's heard of that you think is better right you can do that but you have to be able to convince somebody that it is better and you have to ask yourself that do you have the marketing ability to convince somebody who's never heard of you when you've got all these other brands around yeah versus the um you know the example which i did in the past where you can go to overseas and just find a product and there's plenty of companies at least back when i was there that would just basically yeah you could buy a product and private label it put your label yeah. on it right and so that's totally different but there is that option but what you're saying is really creating something unique which is the better way to do it and i think about the way we did this you know when i first started the wet fly swing i mean we started as a blog and I was trying to really figure out the blogging thing and it just didn't go anywhere because I wasn't a great writer, you know, and then and then when I picked up podcasting instantly, it was like, oh, wow, this actually is resonating with people. And that's because I enjoyed it. Right. And I just found something. And I think maybe that's some good advice. Right. Is find something you like to do instead of trying to push it. Right, right. And I, I wouldn't say being innovative and coming up with a new cooler is going to be a better way to go than private labeling something. It all depends on what your your okay. mission is and what your plan is. So private label still could be great. Oh, yeah, yeah. If you don't want to deal with all of the the marketing and the, uh, you know, there's so much more involved in trying to convince somebody of something. Whereas if you just want to make money and you just want a private label, that could be an easy. Yeah. Well, for example, let's stay on that. So we got the wet fly swing podcast cooler, right? So this is, so you go over to wherever, you know, and you get this cooler, throw on a label and now you got this thing. And again, we have an audience here of people that listen. So it'd probably be easier than starting from scratch, but that is, you're saying that is a potential way to still to go. Right. Right. I mean, anytime you have any kind of leverage and um, a specialty that you can leverage to market it, that's, you know, that's a great thing. For me to design something, if I didn't have industrial design and manufacturing 
background, it would be very difficult for me to, to design a product because I've got to have somebody, I've got a lot of thoughts floating around in my head, but I don't know what to do. So to get those thoughts out, you've got to talk to somebody, you got to tell them what you're trying to do and let them, you know, spin on that for a while and come up with some concept sketches and, and then and circle back and meet with you. It's like, does this work? Does that, they're basically trying to get your ideas out because they have the tools to do that, the skill to do that. And so that's what I would say is, is it a product that you need to go to a, a somebody for some consulting for, or maybe you're a, you're really strong in, in branding. Um, and you've done a lot of brand development in the past and you know exactly how to position this cooler, but you need help on the uh, product design engineering side, or maybe you're a product engineer and you design this cooler. You don't have to do anything else, but you've never branded a product or a company before, and you need some help on that side. And, um, you know, another direction you can go is you can come up with a product and you can have it designed and cost it out and everything. But before you invest in building a company and all that, you can take that idea and maybe sell it to somebody who's already equipped to sell it. You know, maybe it's already in their wheelhouse to sell and label that, you know, so innovative people, you know, there's a lot of ways they can use their creativity. I just chose the hardest way to where I'm yeah. going to come up with a product. I'm going to market it myself. I'm going to brand my own company. You know? it all. Right. All right. I have to, I have to do it all. Yeah. Which works, which works, but maybe it takes a little bit longer. Well, it, it does take longer. Um, the more innovative something is, the longer it's going to take. There's this thing um, that marketers have referred to for decades, and it's called the diffusion of innovation theory. And what that's saying is every one of us, basically this theory is it's the speed at which groups accept new ideas or innovation. Mm. And we all fall into, it's basically a bell curve. And um, we're all in one part of this bell curve. And we're either at the very beginning of the bell curve as innovators, and there's only, they're only like 2.5% of this group. And then you've got your early adopters, they're 13%. And then the early majority, when you get up towards the top of that bell curve, that's the early majority, and that's 34%. And as you peak and start to come down on the backside of that bell curve, you've got 34% are the late majority. And then at the very bottom, at the tail end, there's 16% are called the laggards. And you need to know kind of where your product is and who you want to, if you have a good understanding of where all these groups and how they accept your ideas, it'll help you market. It can help you target uh, certain groups. Like um, for me, like the Stinger is very different and it's kind of changing the whole way we think about fly fishing. So I want to go after the early adopters because their early adopters are the change agents. And that 13% is pretty important to have on your side because they're looking for opportunities. Um, they don't need a lot of proof. They can figure it out on their own. That, okay, I get that. That group is, they call them the change agents. They're, they're usually a little younger in age. They embrace change. They are a little more financially secure. They have higher social status. So what they've done is they've, each one of these groups, they've broken them down. And we all fall into one of these groups. For each product, for every product. You can be in different groups for different products. So like um, what you're really trying to do is get to that 34% and the 30, the next level, which is the early majority. They're the watchers. They're the ones that are watching what's going on. You know, they don't have as much social pool, but they tend to watch the early adopters and they're eager to see what they, if they like it, then they adopt it. And then you have the 
the other 34%, which are the late majority, and they're the skeptical group. And they just kind of, um, they just kind of wait. And uh, they're not as financially secure. They typically, their social circles are some of the early majority. They're not really watching the early adopters. They're watching the early majority, right? So it's really interesting, the social circles that are within each one of these groups. And then you've got the the 16%, which are the laggards. And you never want to market to them because these are the slowest group to adopt new ideas, if if at all. In fact, they have like an aversion to to change agents. They don't like those young kids changing things. Oh, so if you had the if you had the nine foot five weight fly fishing rod, just the standard, where would that fit? I mean, you would be more laggard type people that just want the. Well, yes and no. I mean that that has proven itself as you know such a a staple rod in your in your quiver that I don't think that's going to go away, but you know, this group may not accept um, Euronymphing, for example, right? Mm, yeah. They are more stuck on their way of fly fishing. Um, they hold on to traditions. That's uh, a characteristic. And their social circles, which is interesting, their social circles are uh, family and other laggards. Oh, wow. Yeah, they're not spreading the word. They're not telling friends and stuff. No, they're not telling friends about this new thing they saw. They're actually putting things down. Oh, I saw this and, you know, and these guys are doing this. And so obviously you don't want to mark market to them. Um, you know, so in, in my case, I'm targeting early adopters so that the early majority can, can watch and learn and see what's going on. But it, it's really interesting. I did make a, uh, a mistake early on in, um, in Maverick where a marketing guy I was working with convinced me to launch on Kickstarter. And that was a huge mistake. Oh, it was. So Kickstarter wasn't good. It wasn't because, I mean, we were fully funded and we, we did well, but it, it kind of hurt the brand in a way because you got to remember Kickstarter people are the innovators. They are that 2.5%. They're young. They have extra money. They want new ideas, but they're not fly fishermen, right? So they saw my product, said, oh, that makes sense. That's great. I want it. And we were successful in that way, but we weren't successful and getting that product into the hands of people who really know what they're doing, right? Like the Stinger is something for a more advanced, somebody who really appreciates lightweight, right? And the advantages of lightweight. Whereas the average Kickstarter guy probably just needs a reel where he can reel in a fish, right? He's not, he doesn't have the skills to strip. He doesn't have the skills to uh, haul cast or doesn't know what dead drifting is, right? Yeah. So we couldn't take advantage of that whole all those people that we sold to on Kickstarter. In fact, we had to undo a lot of things because now we've got people just not understanding the product when they got it. Oh, right. So everybody paid money. Gotcha. Right. Wow. Right. So that's where I would say it's important to identify your target, your target market. In our case, it's tightliners who are who are in agreement with with our belief that tightlining is going to go lighter, not heavier. Yeah. Right. And that's way too advanced for the average Kickstarter person or beginner. So what we're saying is, going back to what we're saying is, tightlining is all about line control and elevating that line and getting a good dead drift. And you can do that better with a longer, lighter rod and, and lighter reel. You can control your line better. But that's at a level that is just so above the average fly angler and the reason we're pushing this is because we kind of see fly fishing going almost in the wrong direction where people are saying, well, the important thing with 
tight lining is balance on your rod. So yeah. to get balance, you're adding a bunch of weight to it with a bigger reel and adding weight to your reel. Well, again, you're reaching that point of diminishing return where, yeah, your, your reel is balanced or your rod is balanced, but now your arm is hurting because you can't hold it up. And everything about tight lining is holding that line above the water. It is. So you can't, right. You need to hold your arm up and keep as much as possible. Right, right, right. And the other thing people don't realize too, is when you have a balanced system and you add all that weight, and now you got this perfectly balanced 10 foot, six or 11 foot rod, you know, now this thing weighs, you're getting into the 14 ounce range, which is heavy compared to a, a bare naked three ounce rod. All right. So that's it. 14 ounces versus your rod. Like you're talking, the new rod is going to be like three under three ounces. Right. But then you add the stinger and now we're at five, 5.3 ounces, but 5.3 versus 14 ounces is huge. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I mean, the lightweight thing is something that's the direction we see it going, especially with technologies with carbon fiber. Now, you know, getting rods as light and strong as they are. I'm just waiting for that time when graphene is in, in, um, popular in rods. You know, because at that point, they're going to be able to use a lot less material versus, uh, you know, regular carbon fiber that that we're using now. And when you use less material, it's going to be those rods are going to be so much lighter and stronger. Yeah. Yeah. So we're waiting for that. I mean, some companies are claiming to use it, but I've studied graphene and I think the way that they're um, I think we're just not ready yet right now. And what is graphene? So you got. So you got graphite, mm -hmm. right? So that's what everybody knows. And the, you got carbon. Like, describe that a little bit, like graphene, graphite, carbon. Well, graphite and carbon fiber are basically the same thing. But graphene, is a, it's a new nanoparticle that they have to mine. And the process of mining graphene is really laborious. And, you, and there's not very much of this material. The process is really intensive. And, and then to be able to use that material once they've mined it, to use it in your carbon fiber. It's basically, it's an additive to your carbon fiber. And um, if you had unlimited budget, you can use graphene like uh, formula one cars. I had a chance to go to um, McLaren in England and, uh, and Lotus during my element case days. And I was able to see you know, how they're building these formula one cars and they all use graphene in their carbon oh, fiber wow. because it just makes it that much stronger. And, uh, you know, but they'll do anything to win. Yeah. I think when graphene gets to the point where they can use it in a, in a fly rod, things are going to change drastically, but right now we're not, we're not there, you know, just, just adding some graphene dust into your rod isn't going to help, but you know, I, sorry. That's That's <laughs> how amazing. do we get on that? We, we, went, I love it. What were we talking about before we got into it? I love it. I, I don't even remember. I don't remember. This is great. This is, this is <laughs> awesome. I love the graphene. I always, uh. Well, let me take it to this because this is a question I've been having. I know you probably have a good answer, but, you know, so let's take it to fly fishing. So we got somebody maybe listening here who has a product, maybe an idea of a new product. You know, what should they be, what should they know about the fly fishing kind of business industry that might help them, you know, along the way that you've seen maybe some challenges or some advice? Well, uh, for one, it's a very small industry. So if you think that you're going to make a lot of money, it's not as likely in a fly industry as consumer electronics or other outdoor sports and activities or even like motocross or like we did how much bigger is biking motorbiking than fly fishing oh man it's yeah all of that stuff is so much bigger than than fly fishing so having said that i would say that that could affect the way you design your your company maybe you want to stay small it doesn't matter that it's a small industry as long as you know your expenses and your overhead are low like um 
I mean, think about some of the bigger fly fishing companies in our space, right? Yep. They've got a lot of mouths to feed. They've got a lot of expensive. They've got a lot of departments and um, it's just not a real big industry. So if you look at the industry as a whole, our sector, fly fishing, and think of it as like a, a pyramid, right? You've got different sectors. You've got on the very bottom, you've got people who are not willing to pay a lot of money for things. You want They're going to pay as little as possible for their goods. And the opposite is the very tip of the pyramid. Those are people who are going to pay any amount to have the best or what they think is the best, right? Yep. But there's not as many of them. So you have to think about where do you want to be? Yeah, where are you? Right. Where are you? Um, for us, we want to be not at the bottom. We don't want to sell for the cheapest price because remember, we're talking about performance and we want to sell really great products at a good price. But people may not buy from us because they don't know the name as well as some of the bigger brands. So the bigger brands, they may be able to sell stuff, you know, just on their name alone. Yeah. So that's kind of like a vanity purchase. You want to have the best of the best and you can afford it. And that's great. If they can afford it, that's great. Our sweet spot is, is we're saying we're going to sell a great product, especially with this new rod. And we want, we're selling a great pro level rod at about half the price, but we can only do that if we stay small and direct. Right. So I've made that a business decision. And those are the things you have to think about. Like, do you want to sell a lot of something to larger audience and stay at the bottom of that, of that uh, pyramid, you know, and take a smaller and have the bigger piece of the pie, or do you want to niche down and be very specific? Right. Right. Yeah. You kind of get into that profit margin thing and, and all that conversation. This is good. So that gives us a little insight on, you know, again, reminding, we've talked about that quite a bit on the podcast, just how small fly fishing is. And you could even look compared to regular conventional fishing, you know, it's, it's still a tiny, a tiny thing. Right. And that's why it's important to, to realize you don't, it doesn't really matter if you want to stay small, but it does matter the bigger the company you plan to, you plan to create. And then the, the other thing I would say too, is the product and your strategy, as far as product design and development, you really have to consider how many of these do you want to sell? Because product design and prototyping, the cost of it is a lot different on say a machine product versus a injection molded product. Whereas injection molding, it's going to cost you a lot of money to engineer it and to make the molds. But when you, after you're done with that, you can make product very inexpensively, right? And your profit margins will be a lot higher on a product like that, but you got to sell more. So if it's a type of product that you can sell more, you, then you want to think about those types of uh, production or manufacturing processes. Whereas something that's CNC machined, you can get up and going a lot quicker. You can get into prototype and even manufacturing a lot faster and even cheaper sometimes, but your piece part costs are going to be higher. Your assembly is going to be higher, right? So you have to really think about the product and where you're going to position it uh, relative to, to the industry, the particular industry that you're in and make that hard decision. How am I going to do it? What makes the most sense with the amount of funds you have to get started? You know, maybe you don't have a lot of money, so maybe you only want to do small production runs. So machining might be better than forging, for instance, right? Right. But then once you grow to a certain size, then you want to switch over maybe to a, a forged uh, metal part. 
which the tooling is expensive and it takes longer to make, but now you can stamp them out, right? Yeah, I love that. No, I think that's a great take. I, I always think of it like with products and thinking or anything, you know, you kind of, like you said, the pre-sale, right? To get out there, you got this idea, you know, whether that's a course or whatever it is or a trip. I mean, one easy way is just to go out to whoever that audience is and say, hey, I've got this thing, you know, do you want to buy it? Here are all the features and benefits and then get people to actually, you know, that's kind of a launch, right? Well, you did the Kickstarter, but there's other launch tech, um, you know, ways to do it. And then, so that's one way. Yeah, that's, it's tough because you have to make all those decisions before you have a lot of data. So you just have to get the data that is out there, which is, okay, what's the closest competitor? What are they selling for? What's better about yours or how much cheaper is yours? Maybe it's the same exact thing, but you can come in at a lower price. So what is the advantage? And those are the things you have to, you have to think about. And you have to balance that out with what kind of company do you want? Do you want to, you know, for me, I wanted to keep this very simple because I don't want to go back to a company where it grew to the point where I wasn't talking to customers and I wasn't, you know, I was so out of the loop. I had no control over that. And, you know, I just didn't want that. I wanted uh, Maverick to be a small company that I could manage myself, um, you know, only two, three, four people at most. And, um, you know, if the opportunities grow, are there to grow from there, then, then I'll worry about that later, but, you know, really try to keep everything under control. And then you have to just decide what your resources are. I mean, you have to figure out, well, you've designed your company, you know, what your product is, you know, kind of how much it's going to cost to, to design and develop it, how much time it'll take. So you've done all your research and then you've got to figure out, well, are you going to fund this yourself or do you have to go out and find partners and uh, do an equity share? And in that, there's a couple things you can do. You can find a silent partner who's just willing to give you a bunch of cash to do it and split the profits later. Or you can find a partner that actually has some strengths that you don't have and you can take advantage of that. You know, like uh, for me, my partner's a web guy and he's, he's really good. I can never do that. And I don't want to learn that. You know, and I also have a good accounting uh, person, a CPA, and yeah, I could learn how to use QuickBooks, but I don't want to. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, that's it. Find the right people to to cover you. Right, right. So that's the other thing is think about what what team you're going to need at the very minimum and what work you're willing to do to have this business. What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? Um, You know, how much risk are you willing to take? How much time are you willing to put into this business? So, I mean, it could be that if you want to get into fly fishing, the best thing for you is to buy an existing fly fishing company, right? Right. Um, We hear this a lot, right? On some of your guests, they bought the company, they had the opportunity to move on something. And the good thing there is all the systems are in place. I mean, clearly there's going to be things you can adjust and you want to make it your own, but you're not starting from ground zero. You're you've already hit the ground running. Even if they're in financial trouble, you can fix that, right? Exactly. So that's always a good way to, you know, get into the fly fishing industry if that's what you want. Yeah. So, I mean, luckily for us, it's an industry that we all like and enjoy. So whatever it is, just being in the industry is, is fun. Being outdoors. Yeah. Being outdoors and yeah. So there's a lot of ways you can do it. 
No, I love that. I think that's a great way to uh, to wrap this up because I think you hit on some key points there. Um, anything else you want to share before we head out of here and then talk about where you might send people to follow up on some, you know, maybe some of this business stuff or who some of your mentors, other things where you're learning about this stuff? I would say uh, business in general, learn how to write a business plan. There's actually a really good book out there. It's called How to Write a Business Plan and it's put out by NOLA Books and it's a uh, Mike McKeever uh, wrote it. And I'm not suggesting that you buy this book because you need to write a business plan to present to a bank or do this. Writing a business plan really is a step-by-step process of going through all your ideas and flushing everything out, right? Mm -hmm. And proving that everything has, you know, you've answered all the the questions and and it is going to be a viable business. And then if you do need to go out and find money, you've got this plan already, already built, right? Yeah. So it's always a good idea to to learn how to write a, a business plan. And just remember that, you know, I built my whole career off of designing innovative stuff. And so I know how hard it is and uh, and now to market something innovative and how long it takes. I mean, I mean, think about mountain bikes, right? Yeah, there weren't mountain bikes. There wasn't a 29 inch at, at some point. Yeah. I mean, right now it's common, but you look back at uh Gary Fisher, he he tried to push the 29 inch or the 700 C wheel for for years back in the 90s and 2000s, and no one would listen. But his time came, right? And the industry yep. accepted it. And um, I mean, that's happened all in all over in, in mountain biking. I mean, all those first full suspension bikes they weren't started by the big companies like Trek, Specialized, or Cannondale, or a, a giant. You know, they were all started by small companies that none of us ever heard of. Monolith and Boulder Bikes, San Andreas. How many of us have ever heard of Amp no. Research, right? They're the ones that designed and innovated full suspension mountain bikes. The big companies, they don't innovate because, because they don't want to take the chance. It's a big gamble for them. So they let the small companies innovate right and the market says prove it right see what happens snowboarding it wasn't invented by k2 or rosignal i mean that was invented by jake burton gosh i guess there's all those examples and i mean apple is another good example right they didn't uh didn't invent the iphone right yeah but they created the best iphone or the best phone maybe yeah that that's kind of the opposite they didn't really innovate the ideas some or the technology they were just really good at um making it cool (laughs) <laughs> yeah, making it cool. Well, he did have the idea. I think Jobs had the idea. He knew he wanted to take Apple into that thing, right? The phone being everything. Right, right. But right, it's a little different. And, you know, if, if you're just interested in product design in, in general, because a lot of people ask me, well, how do I get into product design? I mean, it's you go to design school, you know, it surprises me how, you know, like product designers, we sketch a lot, we draw a lot, and uh, now we do it all on tablets, but before it was all pen and pencil and markers and all that, right, and clay. People were always so intimidated. It's like, I can't draw. Well, it, it's, doesn't, it's not even about that because it's just a skill and it's just a tool. Um, if you've got ideas and you think that you like developing ideas and you'd like to be a designer, then go to design school. You'll learn how to do all that. Right. Say you like mountain biking well design in the mountain bike industry you know maybe you had aspirations to be a pro pro rider someday and it just didn't happen well you could still be in the industry right it's just it's a lot of fun to be able to design and develop products for those you know kind of the pro and elite level um, athletes 
you know, it's just kind of fun. It's a way to be at the very top of the, you know, that industry, but you're not the athlete. You're the one supporting them with products. Right. And that's yeah, where yeah. I've always, you know, that's where I've always had a lot of fun and gotten a lot of uh, enjoyment out of a design career was designing a Fox helmet for, for Ricky Carmichael, you know, hmm. or, um, you know, that was the, the winningest helmet in history because at the time, you know, he wore that helmet so much and, uh, you know, it was a helmet I did. So I'm never going to be a pro motocrosser. Right. That time is over for me, but yeah. to say I've been able to do that. And so I think that being a product designer is a good way to be close into the, uh, the activities you like. And if you want to be in fly fishing and you want to, you know, do what you like, that's probably the biggest takeaway is you just have to be passionate about it, uh, regardless of, of the money, right? The money will come. Yep. You gotta love it. That's the bottom line. Exactly. You gotta love it. Like do not go. Yeah. If you're not loving what you're doing, definitely. Yeah. Don't do It's not for the money. That's probably the, the big takeaway, right? It's like, you're not <laughs> going to make a, a billion dollars probably in the fly fishing space. You never will. But if you like it, so what? I mean, I think, you know, as I've gotten older, my priorities have changed. I see things a lot differently now as far as my career and what I want to be doing with my time. And, uh, you know, it's a lot different than before. And I'm ready. I want to just step back and uh, have a small company and just be a very special company to to the people I that uh, buy from me. I don't want to ever grow to be a, a big company. It's just more fun for me that way, you know? Yeah. Love it. Cool, Jeff. Well, I think we'll send everybody out if they have questions on any of this with the products, uh, maverickusa.com. And, uh, and then same, if they want to get a hold of your rods, check out this new rod coming that is, will likely be out when this is uh, live, they can check that out. And we're going to have a special, uh, promo, uh, discount code as well that we'll have uh, in the show notes people can check out. So, uh, so yeah, until the next one, uh, thanks for the time, Jeff. And it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks Dave for letting me ramble on about stuff, non-fly fishing. <laughs> yeah. It's what we love. We love keeping it interesting. So this has been awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks a lot. There we go. You can head over to wetflyswing.com slash 484 right now. If you want to check out the show notes, take a look at that uh, Maverick uh, gear Jeff's got a new rod that just came out. You can find out what that looks like right now and uh, and you take it a step further. Let's give a quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Mitch Wilson. Mitch Wilson said, hi, Dave. I live in Arizona and the Grand Canyon is where I call home. Been there since 2019 in the park system since 2004. Love your podcast. And in fact, listen to your most recent podcast last night while walking the dog on our nightly walk. Pretty new to the fly fishing world, but think about it daily. I'm actually going on a four-day rafting trip at the end of the month in the Green River and hope to do some fishing too. Best, Mitch. Thanks, Mitch, for checking in and uh, definitely great to connect with you. I appreciate the support on the podcast. Uh, if you're listening right now and you want to get a shout out like Mitch, you can do that really easy. Just send a message anytime, Dave at wetflyswing.com or like I said on Instagram. Check out there at WetFlySwing and we will get you a shout out and uh, and either read a question, read your uh, email, or uh, we'll ask a question of an upcoming guest. If you get a chance, please support our sponsors anytime. Click over there, wetflyswing.com slash sponsors. A reminder, next week we've got a great episode with Lily Renzetti. If, you, uh, if you've ever thought about getting a new vice and, uh, and don't know about the Renzetti, we hear the story. 
All right, I'm going to leave it at that and let you get out of here. I hope you're having a good evening, a good morning, or a good afternoon, wherever in the world you are. Appreciate you for stopping by today and checking out the podcast. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.